Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here once again, flying solo this time as we kick off the new year. Uh, as we had, as I mentioned previously before, and uh, if, if you listened to the last couple episodes, um, <clears throat> Chema has taken a step back from the podcast, so I am flying by myself here for a little bit. Um, haven't done this in a while, actually. I think the last time that I did a solo episode was a couple of years ago for a... Um, a recommendation rewind, I believe, um, or something along those lines. So it's been quite a bit. This is going to be an interesting sort of um, uh, getting my getting my dipping my toes back into the solo podcasting thing. I honestly, <clears throat> I did it for a little while previously, and once you get used to it, it's it's not that bad. But it is kind of weird having a very one ended conversation with yourself. Um, I even thought about kind of jumping in and doing like a high energy intro, which also seems strange. Uh, for <laughs> considering I'm the only one that would be essentially for just for my own benefit and might annoy everyone else if there was no uh, if there was no like back and forth with something like that. So <clears throat> so anyway, um, I am kicking off this year, this new year, this first episode of January um, with a uh, this, excuse me, this whole month uh, we as we uh, as we did last year, we themed every single month this year. We're starting off this year with a themed month called the Gatekeepers. Um, and the general premise of this of the episodes this month, uh, we're going to dive into some topics that feel like you need to be a part of the in group to really understand or enjoy, or you know, like the, there's just a high I call it a high barrier to entry in some way, shape, or form. Um, and we'll get a little bit more into that here in a, in a minute. But I I kind of want to take on some of these subjects to show that maybe you aren't that far away from being in the in group as you might. As you might, uh, you know, as it might appear, um, and specifically, we're going to talk about uh, we're going to three episodes uh, in the coming weeks here, and we're going to talk about new technology. Uh, you know, some stuff on the on the cutting edge of tech might seem really daunting. Um, you know, the, some of the terminology, the concepts, just seem like they're from they are almost science fiction uh, versus you know, kind of science fact now. Um, but there's also a very good chance that uh, with some of these newer technologies that you are unintentionally a gatekeeper yourself, um, which we're, we'll define that here in a little bit too. Uh, so we're going to be ta- we're going to start off with new technology, and then we're going to move on to one of my favorite things to talk about: um, the gym, uh, navigating gym culture for the first time. You know, it's it's one of those places that is that can be sort of an intimidating place for anyone who isn't familiar with it. And I kind of, <clears throat> as someone who is very seasoned in the gym, uh, I, I want to help. I want to help uh, break down some some of those myths and break down some of those walls that might make it uh, that might make it seem like the gym is a very daunting place as well. And then we'll finish out with some sports, um, <clears throat> understanding the nuances of specific sports, uh, understanding and navigating the fan bases. Might even get into. Uh, I haven't gotten around to uh, you know to really writing anything for this one yet. But might even dive into um, into some sports gambling since that is, that is now legal in my state and in a lot of states uh, nationwide. Uh, excuse me. Throat has been sore all week. Trying not to cough into the mic or have my voice crack too much. But so those are the things we're going to be getting into. New technology, the gym, and sports all this month. So why January for, for the gatekeeper? Um, well, Janus, the namesake of January, is the god of beginnings, gates, transitions, time, duality, doorways, passages, uh, and endings as well. It, this time of year is about, is about <clears throat> excuse me, this time of year is about resolutions 
and a lot of times trying new things. So what better time than now to talk about the stuff that might seem out of range for some people? So that's why we're that's why I'm going ahead and doing it this month. Now, a gatekeeper, a gatekeeper by definition, you know, someone who controls access to something, right? Like that's a gatekeeper. Um, but we're not talking about people protecting passageways or entrances to cities. Uh, instead, we're going to be talking about some of the barriers that keep people from accessing certain things. Now, there are a lot of things in <clears throat> in our in our lives, our daily lives, that have uh, some very notable gatekeepers that you might not be thinking um, about in, in those terms. Let's start like with high level entertainment and sports, right? You can join a community theater if you want to, and probably get some kind of you know some kind of speaking role or something, um, you know, at the uh, at the theater company down the street. Uh, that you know that a bunch of retirees have nothing better to do but to go act in plays and stuff like that. You can you can definitely walk in off the street and uh, and go act in in that regard. But if you walked into a theater company in New York or Chicago or even Cleveland for that matter, you would not just land a role. Um, there are a lot of hoops to jump through and people that need to clear you before you can get to that level. Talent agents, um, scouts, the you know the directors, right? You know directors of the shows, writers. There's a whole bunch of people that are keeping you out purposefully from just being able to go do something like that. Um, when you think about sports, I think the most the easiest sort of way to think about this is think about baseball and the multitude of gatekeepers you need to pass to get to a high level professionally. You have to play in high school, so you know you have to make that high school team. You have to beat out other kids. The coach has to has to let you on the team in high school. Then from there, you have to be good enough to go on to college and play. And play baseball, or be good enough right out of high school to skip college altogether, which is a whole other sort of pleasing a different set of gatekeepers. Um, then you need to go through three or four levels of minor leagues, um, and then before you even get to that point, you the manager of the major league team needs to needs to go. You know what? You're good enough for this team, and you need to actually play. So there's a there's a whole bunch of gatekeepers there. Um, in a more practical level, um, for you know the regular people like you and I, um, higher ed institutions, right? You know, grades are the usually the ultimate factor for admissions into you know a, a university or college, but admissions might pass you over for someone who's an equal with better extracurriculars, um, better references, more money as it turns out in a lot of cases, um, or you know someone who's applying knows the right people. So you know that's that's another that's one that's a little bit more practical and a little bit like easier to sort of understand. Um, and then even even when you get down, to, even when you um, you know think about like professionally, um, certain trades especially are have skill requirements, certifications, uh, unions set up to limit who can join their profession. You know, masonry, carpentry, auto workers, electrical workers. Um, those unions are set up to protect their members. Um, there are, like I said, there's uh, certain certifications and requirements you need to become, you need to have to become a, a certain level of mason. Just be a certain level of carpenter to, to have certain jobs in the auto industry. Um, you know, so there's a lot of, there are people that are, that are, you know, making sure that certain, that, uh, making sure that, uh, the, the pipeline of, of jobs of those skilled trades, um, is sort of a harder one to get through. So not everyone can do it. Um, you know, in, in the case of the later two examples, the latter two examples, it might be who you know versus what you know. Um, you know, it's, in in terms of like entertainment and sports, like if you you might know someone quote unquote in sports, but like they're not just going to put you on a team just because like you know the the general manager of some hockey team or something and you happen to play hockey, they're not going to put you on a team. You have to you still have to earn that. But 
in the case of higher ed, in the case of certain trades, you know, if you know one of the gatekeepers directly, it might be it might be the way that you can bypass some of the requirements and skip some levels to get to, um, you know, to get to where you want to get to. Um, so, you know, one of those it's just the, one of those things in life, right? Like it's not uh, what you know, it's who you know. I think entertainment is kind of an interesting case because it seems like the the barriers. It seems like there's fewer gatekeepers um, between between regular people in the entertainment industry now, with the way social media has sort of rapidly changed um, how people ingest in, how people ingest information. Uh, excuse me, how people ingest entertainment media, and like how people can kind of um, catapult their way into the entertainment industry, but realistically speaking those examples are few and very few and very far between um i think we've mentioned multiple times recently um uh, quinta brunson of uh of abbott elementary someone who um you know like a, a legit star in the, in the tv world um she's hysterical very charming and she was one of those people that got started more or less on social media but those types, those individuals are are one in a you know it's already a one in a million sort of shot to enter the entertainment to enter the entertainment industry. Um, <clears throat> I suppose being a social media influencer of some variety, or you know, being having a, a a good social media presence can kind of help help up your odds a little bit. But there's still a lot of gatekeepers that make sure that that isn't make sure that the right people or the people that um, the people that work the best on camera um, are still getting the best opportunities. And obviously, you know, it's not too unlike the skilled trade uh, unions and stuff. There are, in fact, entertainment unions that make sure that not just anyone can sort of walk in, um, you know, be at the Screen Actors Guild, the Directors Guild. Um, there are unions that make sure that uh, certain people are kept out of this particular profession, um, and for good reason. Um, not everyone is a Not everyone is a star basically, even though everyone wants to be a star. Um, there's a pretty interesting example of this recently. I was listening to another podcast um, with uh, where a podcast producer was on talking about um, – there. it was a larger conversation about, like, um, side hustles and jobs and stuff. But um, he was – he produces multiple podcasts, and one of the ones that he did was uh, basically this podcast network just took two – social media influencers with a pretty big following and was like, and basically just said, well, people listen to podcasts. We have these two people who are very popular. Let's put them together. And they did that without like considering, are these people good on, are these people good conversationalists? Can they pick up, can they both pick up on each other and kind of carry a conversation to places where, um, to where it's entertaining, not just, not just two people talking. And as it turns out, they could not. Um, and it's not very, it's not, it's not shocking that the, that a company tried to do this, but it's also, you know, just, just sort of trying to like pick up on a free, you know, free followers, you know, free, uh, free eyeballs, if you will. But it's also not surprising that something like this failed because people, these people who are, you know, famous in their own way, um, didn't have, they, but they were able to bypass the regular sort of. Um, the regular sort of vetting process, if you will, the regular gatekeeping process uh, without anyone having like tested them. And, it, and, you know, there's a reason why you have to go through some of these rigors to get to the level of being a, you know, being a podcast star or a TV star. There's a reason why it just doesn't happen overnight because not everyone is good at it. And 
you need to find out if those people are good at it or not before you just hand them the keys to the the keys to the to the kingdom if you will that was a little bit rambly i apologize but we'll be getting back on track here in a second so i wanted to start with tech because it seems like the news around around tech advancements uh moves real quickly and it, it does and with that uh with that speed also comes like the terminology and concepts that might seem completely foreign to the average person. Um, so I wanted to start there because it is some of this is kind of confusing, and I'll go through some of that. Um, <clears throat> but I also want to touch on some stuff that is not as confusing as you might think, and a lot of it just has to do with you sitting down and kind of fooling around with it, basically. Um, and as I mentioned before, this is also a lot of where a lot of where a lot of people my age, uh, especially, are actually gatekeepers in this particular community. Uh, and we'll circle back to that. So I'll start off with I'll start off with a concept that is one of those concepts that you hear a lot about that is in fact very the barrier to entry is extraordinarily high. Um, that there the gate the gatekeeping is almost done on its own because it's not something that is very it's not a field that is easy to get into. Um, you've probably heard a lot about quantum computing recently. Um, and what quantum computing basically is it's a type of computing that uses quantum mechanical phenomenon. Uh, to perform operations on data. So you have um, quantum bits or qubits that exist in multiple states simultaneously, and that's allows, that's allow, that allows a quantum computer to perform many calculations at once. Your phone or laptop, um, your desktop, whatever, uses bits, which are only in a single state, zeros or ones, right? You, you probably know that from computing. Um, qubits are both zeros and ones at the same time. This is like quantum superposition. And... When you are in both states at the same time, you don't have to compute linearly. You can compute forward, backwards, up, down, left, right. Um, if you were to put this on a graph, you could go in multiple directions with your computations. And because the state of qubits is, again, both both things simultaneously or multiple things, multiple states simultaneously, quantum computers can solve problems much, much faster. Now, <clears throat> that's, that's, a, that's a lot to kind of like digest and think about. Um, but again, it's just nothing that you really need to worry about right now. When If you see one of these articles or you hear someone talking about it or whatever. Um, not sure where you are. If people are just casually talking about quantum computing, you probably already work in that field. But you, if you happen to catch an article or something or see something like that come across your Facebook feed, um, it's probably nothing you need to worry about because these computers aren't usable by regular people yet. They are not how you think of a computer. You know, they're not a, they're not a laptop they're not a phone. There's there's nothing, almost nothing recognizable about them. Uh, they're very experimental, very expensive. Most of them need to be super cooled by like these powerful coolant systems. Um, some of them are, they've gotten smaller, but some of them are as big as rooms. Um, basically, with the coolant systems and everything else. Um, honestly, it's kind of a throwback to the way old computers were. Um, you know, these giant machines, basically. Um, this and like just you know, this is when you think of a quantum computer, think of more of a machine than a computer. Um, and really they're not like, it's not like you just type in, you know, open up a screen and type in like, Hey, figure out to, you know, decode the human genome for me real quick. Um, the, the way that they, they kind of measure their performance is like solving very specific problems that, um, specific problems that only would, um, be, you know, that could only be figured out by this type of computing system. And, for the most part, um, most of these computing systems only last for a few microseconds. And, like, some of the longer ones are, like, 90 microseconds. 
in their in their uh, computing in their lifespan. Basically, it's not like they totally break down; like you have to throw everything away. Um, and there's this is where this is where you really get into some high barrier um, knowledge kind of stuff here. I mean, it's, it's even stuff that I'm not like 100 percent um, honed in on. But it's not like you need to throw the computer out. It's just like you need to kind of start with a new. It's almost like you're you're putting a new a new chip in uh, into your you know new you know some more ram into your into your current computer i'm not sure if that's an apt uh an apt uh, um analogy right there but um you know it's not like you just have to throw these things out but point being here you probably won't need to learn how to use a quantum computing system in your lifetime uh, maybe maybe our maybe our kids will maybe the the kids that are being born right now um one day they'll open up their computers and it'll be a, you know they'll have a quantum quantum computing system at their fingertips uh, more than likely, that's not like the. There probably won't be a, a regular consumer application for these types of machines. More than likely, but uh, you never know. At one point in time, there was no, um, there was no consumer application for what we think of computers as today. So that could possibly change. It's just very unlikely in the next, let's say, fifty years that something like that is going to uh, um, roll off. You know, there's going to be the Apple quantum computing system, the Apple quantum Mac, or something. Um, that's very unlikely. Now, while you might not need to know a ton about quantum computing systems, there is something that is already pushing its way into our everyday lives that would be helpful if you did know a few things about, and that is artificial intelligence, of course. If you search through, if you search for uh, AI, artificial intelligence, whatever, through Google News, you'll get a stream of articles that cover a lot of stuff. Um, <clears throat> a lot of it does seem very esoteric, and a lot of it is, in fact, very esoteric. When you go through Google and you're looking up artificial intelligence or AI, you'll you'll see stuff. You'll see articles about AI ethics, um, artificial art, artificial intelligence stocks, and also how artificial intelligence is helping um, you know push the stock market. Um, AI lawyers fighting court cases. That is a real thing. There is a there's an AI um, program that's going to help uh, a defendant in a very low stakes, not like a murder case or something. It's like a, some uh, traffic ticket stuff. There's a, an AI that's going to help a uh, defendant defend himself in court. Um, so there's a lot to consider there. Most of it probably isn't terribly important for you to under, understand all the details, but there are some things that are very, very interesting that you can use um, that you can use every day um, that maybe might break down some of those barriers to how you think about artificial intelligence and also sort of um, help you actually learn some of these articles as you go through here are like they almost sound like apocalyptic and like very ominous. Um, there was there was an article up there about the uh, it was, I can't remember if it was on Politico or you know where it was from, but the the title of it was uh, tracking the AI apocalypse. Um, there's all these other ominous things about you know deep fakes and um, just the nefarious ways that artificial intelligence can be used. And certainly there is that that dark side of technology exists, right? Like we've for every advancement in technology, there's some sort of dark side underbelly that comes along with it. There, certainly, we can't ignore any of that. However, I think getting hands-on with some artificial intelligence tools can help can help um, sort of lessen the again break down the barriers to you know understanding them and using them, but also kind of like show you quite frankly like how far away we are from artificial intelligence being, you know, used to, to blackmail celebrities and take over, 
um, take over cryptocurrency exchanges and, and disrupt the world banking system. Like we're, you know, fire nuclear weapons or whatever. We're, you can see in practice how very far away those capabilities are. And quite frankly, I don't think that they're ever, you know, the idea of something like Skynet becoming a self-aware, intelli- you know, artificial intelligence, um, that is just simply not a possibility with, not because it's something that we couldn't or wouldn't do, simply because of how limited our technology and how limited the way we program these things actually, the the shortcomings, I should say, of the sort of programming these things actually um, becomes apparent when you see them like laid bare. So I will get into one right now that um, I actually just used um, to explain to explain quantum computing. Now, it, it's stuff. It's quantum computing is something I already know a little bit about, but like it's one of those things that's hard to put directly into words. So I had someone else go ahead and do the words for me, and by someone else, I had an AI go ahead and write a brief prompt, write a brief. Um, Summer, summation for me that would explain quantum computing in more lay terms than getting a, a little bit too getting a little bit too deep into the terminology. Uh, and so I used a program called ChatGPT. I'm sure a lot of people who are interested in tech have heard of this recently. Maybe you've even, even um, seen it the firsthand uh, how it works. Maybe you've read an article, uh, one of those again, one of those like doomsday articles about uh, about ChatGPT. But I used it just uh, to sort of give you a summation of what quantum computing is. And uh, I actually asked uh, ChatGPT to explain itself to you. I think that would actually be um, a little bit more useful than me trying to explain it to you. So <clears throat> I just asked it, can you briefly explain how you work? And this is what it uh, responded with. I'm a computer program, also known as a machine learning model, that is trained on a large database, large data set of text. I use this training data to learn patterns and relationships in the language, which allows me to generate responses to new inputs. When you ask me a question or give me a prompt, my software receives the input and processes it through several layers of algorithms called neural networks. These neural networks are inspired by the way human by the way the human brain works and are specifically designed to understand and generate natural language. The end goal is to produce an appropriate response or answer. My training data was a huge and diverse my training data was huge and diverse, and during this process, I've been exposed to a lot of information, including general knowledge and specific domain knowledge, which allows me to provide you with a wide range of answers. However, my knowledge cutoff is a certain date, and I don't have the ability to browse the internet, so my answer may not be 100% up to date. Additionally, my training data has may have bias and inaccuracies, so while I try to be helpful, I suggest to use my answers as a starting point and verify the information with credible sources. Thank you, ChatGPT, for explaining yourself. Um, a lot of people my age maybe have dicked around with uh, things like chatbots before. This is sort of like um, this is like a, a, a very new generation of chatbots. Uh, it's significantly more significant, uh, excuse me, significantly more sophisticated than the chatbots that we used to use. That basically were um, very at a very low level, sort of guessing what guessing at what a appropriate response based on the word arrangement that we ask it that, that that's how old chatbots work i mean obviously that's how all chatbots work but um this one isn't just sort of guessing as to what what word is going to fill in this one is using a little bit more context to um a little bit more context and pulling from a larger knowledge base 
to formulate answers and using, uh, as it says, it uses algorithms to sort of um, make the, the language a little bit more fluid and natural seeming, which it definitely does. Um, I, I remember some of the old chatbots sticking around with them and they're very, they're very stilted. Um, and sometimes you just would get like a sentence that while grammatically correct and while it makes sense, it just doesn't make sense but in any context. Um, and in all my time dicking around with uh, ChatGPT, I have yet to really come across anything that anything that really stood out as being like wildly out of place. So, for example, I just um, I just asked ChatGPT, "What separates you from other chatbots?" And it gave me a long the you know a few paragraphs here, but I'll um, I'll cut to the two most important ones right in the middle here. Some other chatbots are rule-based, which means they are designed to respond to specific keywords or patterns in the input. Um, you know, basically they're looking for the way the way that you ask a question. They're sort of guessing. They're just guessing on like what on what would satisfy that particular pattern, like what would make the most sense. So let me, let me start over there. Some of the chatbots are rule-based, which means they are designed to respond to sp specific keywords or patterns in the input, and their answers are generated based on a set of predefined rules. These chatbots can be helpful for simple tasks, but they are limited in their ability to understand and respond to more complex, more complex and nuanced, nuanced inputs. Others might be based on simpler machine learning algorithms, these chatbots may not have been trained on as much data, and they might not understand the context as well as I do. Um, interesting that it also refers it to itself as I. Um, other chatbots definitely would not. Um, so, again, while, while this seems like really, um, while this does seem to be like kind of complex, think about it this way. When you ask your Amazon Alexa, Google Home device, whatever, some of your smart home devices, how many times do you ask a question and that question doesn't get answered? It's quite a bit, right? Like, you know, you ask, ask your Alexa, um, what the temperature is, how, you know, how old some celebrity's birthday is, uh, what day, you know, what day did Cal Ripken break the game's consecutive games played record. It's really good with that. Ask it to do something where it has to think and it struggles with that. And it gives you the best answer it can get based off of, as uh, as ChatGPT put out here, it gives you the best answer it can based on specific keywords or patterns in the input and uh, text-generated, text answers and text generated on a set of predefined rules, based on a set of predefined rules. So that's how, like, your Amazon Alexa works. That's how, like, your, your most voice assistants works. Um, whereas this is significantly more, this is significantly different. And I'll uh, I'll give you I'll go through another prompt here real quickly to sort of prove that it's prove that it's doing something different than just kind of responding to your um, you know responding in a, in a very basic way to a question. I'm asking uh, ChatGPT a an opinion question, and if you were to ask the same question of your Alexa uh, or you know whatever other device, your smart speaker device, you're not going to get anything this deep. Now, I will say it doesn't actually answer a question simply because this can't form a specific opinion, but it does give you ammunition, at least for some kind of debate. So I asked it, is Michael Jordan better than LeBron James? And uh, if you listen to our podcast enough, you know that uh, Chem and I used to bring that up quite a bit. It's one of those tired arguments that I, uh, it's, it's, to me, it's a simpleton argument, but whatever, we'll, we'll use it for, for an example here. So is Michael Jordan better than LeBron James? And here's the answer. 
The question of whether Michael Jordan or LeBron James is the better basketball player is a highly debated topic among fans and analysts. Both players are considered among the greatest players of all time, and they have achieved a high-level success throughout their careers. Michael Jordan is considered one of the greatest scorers in NBA history and won six NBA championships with the Chicago Bulls in the 1990s. He was also a five-time MVP, 10-time scoring champion, and 14-time All-Star. He had scoring talent, who was a great defender, an excellent leader, had a competitive drive that led him to six championship rings. When was the last time your Alexa said that to you? LeBron James is considered one of the greatest all-around players in NBA history. He has won four NBA championships and four NBA MVP awards. He's an 18-time All-Star, four-time MVP, two-time Olympic gold medalist, and he holds many other records and distinctions. He is known for his physicality, his vision, his passing skills, and his leadership. Ultimately, it's a matter of opinion. Both players have different skill sets, playing styles, and have different kinds of careers. Michael Jordan's era was different from LeBron James' era in the way the game was played and the way the league was. It's difficult to make a definitive comparison between players from different eras as the game and the league have changed in many ways over time. That is not a response that you'll get from your Alexa. If you ask that, if you ask that question, go ahead, do it right now. Ask Siri. Um, in fact, I actually might do that here in a second, and you'll get a you'll get a very generic sort of here's the information that I have on you know LeBron James. Let, let's try this here. Okay, hopefully you can hear all this. Hey Siri, who is the better basketball player, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Okay. I found this on the web for who is the better basketball player, Michael Jordan or LeBron James. Check it out. And that's where your voice assistant, like Siri, sort of has its limitations, right? It's not going to form an opinion or even give you some, you know, even give you sort of um, a reason why, right? Like, sure, it, it, uh, you know, Siri's going to bring up some websites or whatever for you to look at. But in the course of just in this prompt that I gave to ChatGPT, I got something that I can immediately talk about um, with, you know, if, if I wanted to debate the subject with someone, I do not. But if you wanted to, if you if you think that Michael Jordan's the better option, you can talk about his six NBA championships that was brought up here. Um, even the, even the things that do sort of, you know, sort of define the differences between them. Michael Jordan was a better, you know, a better scorer, great defender, excellent leader. Um, and he has that like insane competitive drive that he is noted for. Like, those are things that pop up right away, right? Um, and then you get down to LeBron James, you know, all of the, all of the sort of the accolades that he's racked up on, in, you know, in a basically an unprecedented career. 18-time All-Star, uh, two-time gold medalist, um, you know, his physical size, court vision, passing skills, all those things that, like, you know, most big men don't, you know, I shouldn't say most, but um, very, very rare even for, you know, a big man like LeBron James to have those passing skills, and the court vision, you know, you're talking about LeBron, Magic Johnson, um, Nikola Jokic, um, those types of players. Like, so you get that sort of information from it, and you know, these something that you would never ever get from a chatbot or from the the very basic AI assistants. Um, probably not even fair to call them AI assistants. So that's where um, that's where something like this sort of um, proves out that it is more than just it's more than the the stuff the first generations of this kind of of this kind of artificial intelligence this is definitely multiple steps forward uh from from the early stuff that i would have been dicking around with when i was in my 20s as with any new technology there are also a lot of people that are um kind of seem like luddites um you know trying to break down the new technology 
Uh, if you don't know what a Luddite is, go ahead and look it up. Um, it applies. But, you know, like I said, as, as technology advances, there's always people who are naysaying it. Um, and, you know, when you, if you just, again, do like a Google News search for ChatGPT, you get a lot of, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of positive stuff here. You know, OpenAI, the, the creators of ChatGPT, are developing software to detect text generated by ChatGPT. So it was a way to kind of figure out, like, where this thing is being used in various places. Um, let's see here. Uh, there's Microsoft, you know, closing a deal to, um, to you know, to obviously use, um, you know, ChatGPT's uh, code to do whatever. Who knows? Um, there's, you know, stuff about, like, its improved accuracy. How, you know, it's been updated multiple times since... Uh, since it's beta launch, um, yeah, there's just like there, if you if you look it up, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of like cult positive, but there's just general news about like where where it's um, you know where it's being utilized. But in this string of articles, you get a lot of cyber criminals are using ChatGPT to create malware. Um, ChatGPT a threat to higher education. Uh, ChatGPT writes convincing scientific abstracts that fool scientists. New York City Department of Education bans ChatGPT. Law professors feared ChatGPT's rise. Um, ChatGPT, educational friend or foe. So there's a lot of this, like, as again, with all new technologies, there's a lot of, like, sort of fear um, behind it. And I, while I understand it, like, you can, um, <clears throat> especially, like, in the realms of education, I can understand it, why there's this initial trepidation for it. Um, for example, I'm going to type in right now, uh, can you give me 10 bullet points, can you give me a 10 bullet point summary, everyone loves hearing people type on podcasts, can you give me a 10 bullet point summary of Moby Dick? If I was a, you know, a high school or middle school English student, um, this might be something that I would use to uh, kind of sidestep, you know, reading Moby Dick and, and writing a report. Um, in fact, it's generating some responses right now. <clears throat> the novel is set in the mid, the first bullet point. Novel is set in the mid-19th century and follows the narrator Ishmael, a sailor who signs up for a whaling voyage as a, word, as a way to escape the land and perhaps himself. The ship, the Pequod, is captained by Ahab. A uh, monomaniacal figure who is obsessed with revenge against a giant white sperm whale. The sailors are excited to set sail as the voyage progresses. They begin to realize that Ahab's obsession has overtaken the ship and they are in danger. Ishmael befriends uh, Queequeg, a harpooner, and Tashtego, an Indian with whom he spends much of the voyage. The ship eventually encounters the white whale and in a feverish chase, Ahab's ship is destroyed and all but Ishmael are killed. Through the voyage, Ishmael reflects the nature of obsession, the futility of revenge, and the destructive aspects of unchecked ambition. The novel also explores themes of masculinity, race, and the relationship between man and nature. The novel is a blend of adventure, tragedy, tragedy and literary fiction. It is an epic, complex, and powerful work. The author, Herman Melville, was drawing from his own experience as a sailor, making the story for many a semi-autobiographical one. The novel was not well-received upon its initial publication, but over time it has grown in, clear, in critical acclaim and, it's, and is today considered a classic of American literature. So if you were writing a, an essay, there are a lot of starting points there. But the thing that, the thing that to me, and this is perhaps because I write quite a bit, 
um, in, in my personal life. The thing that stands out to me, and this is going to be a recurring theme here as we talk about artificial intelligence. The thing that stands out to me is that it is a completely 100%, all, while all of that is correct and all of that is usable information in an essay, um, <clears throat> you know, especially a shorter essay, or at least to use as starting points in an essay, it is completely and totally void of any personality. And one of the things that even, even those amongst us who aren't adept writers or don't do a lot of writing, you have a writing style. And if you if you have to write something that is um, has a little bit more length to it, you know, if that, you know, five hundred words, a thousand words, it's not as much as you think it is. If you have to write something that long, your writing style becomes more and more apparent. Um, you know, whether it's certain turns of phrase that you prefer, um, whether it's certain certain arrangements, uh, sentence arrangements, there is just every single. Every single um, essay that someone writes, especially when it, it you know it's something like a, an English lit class or something in high school or you know a, a, in higher ed, um, that's the thing that you see. Everyone's everyone's writing style is different, and everyone has personality that comes through it. So far, my experimentation with Chat GPT has yielded a lot of very factually correct things, but things that are completely soulless, as I'll call it. Um, so more so to me than, you know, not that I couldn't, not that I couldn't be fooled by one of these things, but if you were an English teacher and you had seen prior to chat GPT, you had seen a student's work, um, you know, you know, maybe multiple essays and then suddenly, you know, the, suddenly, you you know, they turn it an essay, you would notice that the, the sudden change in their writing style and their writing personality, I think that you would notice that before, um, you know, before maybe an uptick in quality of information or something like that. Um, Certainly, obviously, if someone was, if you you know, there's an English teacher that has a student that was a low achiever. And I I don't want to get, I'm not trying to like berate, you know, berate certain people, um, you know, in terms of their like English lit proficiency. But if you did, if you know, if a teacher had a student that was generally floating around that CD level with everything they did, and suddenly they turned in a paper that like is clearly like an A, you know, a, at least a B, perhaps an A level paper in terms of its quality, um, quality of information and, you know, grammatical, <clears throat> grammatical correctness. Um, that doesn't even sound correct to me. Um, grammatical correctness, that certainly would be a warning flag. But if you had a student that was a pretty good writer, you know, that was generally, generally working at like a B to A level, um, I think you would it wouldn't so much be the quality of information and the quality of their arguments. You would just suddenly notice that their writing personality was completely sapped, that there was just suddenly, it was just, it was just very hollow information, more like an, more like a resume as opposed to um, reading something with a little bit more personality. Um, So that's where, that's where it really stands out to me and why I think that while there certainly are opportunities for, this sort of conversational AI to be abused, I think that's it's a lot of it is sort of um, a lot of it is sort of a little bit overreactionary. That um, there was I'm, I couldn't find it. I, I want to say it was I want to say it was from the Atlantic or maybe like Slate or something where a teacher wrote in about how uh, the he wrote an opinion article about how these chat chat GPT but also other conversational AIs as they 
uh, become more sophisticated and more refined are going to quote unquote destroy education. I just, I just don't think so. I think that certainly some people are going to try to use it as a tool, but when it comes to, when it comes to creating something on your own, I, I just think that it this very easily sort of stands out as a, this stands out as like an aberration from um, like a normal, even, even a very highly proficient writer um, who is, you know, who, who is going to provide quality information, quality arguments, um, great sentence structure, great grammar, even, you, you know, basically working at like a computer level of efficiency um, that these still wouldn't be able to, you'd still be able to pick the human one over the AI is basically what I'm saying. So I, I don't think the I don't think the threat is nearly as close. Again, a, a lot of these artificial intelligence things are much farther away than we think. I think just because there is you know there is this program that is like readily available readily available for us to play with, um, it does make it seem like the threat is much more imminent. But I think we're the oper- the possibility of of one of these kind of developing um, personal styles. Uh, in terms of creating text, I think we are at best multiple decades away from that to where we could really truly fool um, someone who has been reading and, you know, someone who someone who is in their own way a gatekeeper to, um, you know, to, uh, to an educational gatekeeper, if you will. We're a long way from fooling them uh, with, with some of these uh, applications and getting past that. Now, having said that, I actually do use this for certain aspects of my job. And there are, like I said, I do a lot of writing, and that's a, that's a, a, a portion of my job. I don't do it quite that often, but when I have to, I usually have to write in volume. And because there is no, this isn't sort of like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to like impress anyone with my literary prowess. I am in, a lot of times just trying to make summations of things and produce a lot of information rapidly. It works really, really well for that. Um, for, you know, you can take you can take articles, news articles, and just feed the you know feed the text directly into um, feed feed uh, the text directly into the system. Ask it to summarize it in you know however many bullet points, and it will do a very good job of condensing you know condensing let's say like a you know like a longer a long form essay on like the Atlantic or. Uh, scientific american or some outlet like that and condensing it down into maybe like five or six bullet points so it can be more widely produced um you know so so you can use it uh so you can use those those informational bullet points in multiple places which is some of the things that i have to do for my work and i probably can't get too much farther into that actually it's being used in um there's a lot of people who do uh book summaries who voice book summaries and things and stuff like youtube um, and it's a good way to summarize a book, as I've just kind of pointed out. Um, <clears throat> you know, it, it gives you it gives you the text prompt basically to to sort of you know here's here are the most important points. Go through and and you know summarize the book that way. So there are like sort of things like that that it, that it can be used for. But again, I think just the inherent sort of soulless nature of the way it produces its information really keeps it from being usable as something something more than just like a set of guidelines now while um, i don't think teachers have much to worry about i do think that like the first application of of conversational ai like there are the the first like widespread application of, of conversational ai i should say 
is going to be in your Google searches. It is going to be like the, the, the first update to your, the first meaningful update to your Amazon Alexa, to whatever your smart, your smart speaker of choice is. That's where we're going to see this thing, this sort of application of this conversational AI being used um, to, inc- to uh, increase the accuracy of, of a Google search. Um, to increase the accuracy of answers when you ask things questions. I think that's sort of the first frontier before we worry about um, before we we worry about um, this AI writing um, you know law school essays and you know writing writing and defending um, theses for uh, you know for someone's PhD. We're a long, long way away from that. Um, could you use it to help you write that? Absolutely. But I feel like the, just the way it is right now, even if you use it to help, help you with information, you still have to do 99% of the lifting, basically. Um, it, it, might, it might help that 1% might help spur ideas, might help spur new thoughts and, and bring you across the finish line. But this is stuff that you still have to do on your own right now. So we are a long way away from artificial intelligence, uh, at least in terms of the way we write things, really changing too many of the rules. All right, now let's turn the page to something that probably is going to change a lot of rules, regulations, and laws in the coming years, Um, and that is AI art generators. Uh, I'm going to specifically talk about mid-journey and stable diffusion. Uh, Those are your two big ones here when it comes to AI art. Um, these um, These two art generators in particular have made a lot of waves. And brought up similar concerns to chat, chat similar concerns that chat GPT has brought up, but obviously in the art world. And in <laughs> I couldn't help it. Um, in true fashion for this particular episode, um, I asked Chat GPT to give me <laughs> sort of a good summary of what the what the general argument is um, against AI or what the, the general controversy over AI generated art is. Um, and again, it gave me kind of a, a big Several big chunks here, but I'll get to the two most important parts. One of the concerns of, again, this is from ChatGPT, of course. One of the concerns is that art generated by AI algorithm could be seen as a kind of industrial production, lacking the soul and the touch of a human creator. Some critics argue that art should come from human emotion, personal experience, and and the decision-making process. Additionally, and this is, to me, this is like where it really gets interesting, um, and I'll I'll, I'll have an example for you here after I finish reading this paragraph. Additionally, the legal and ethical aspects are also disputed. AI-generated art raises questions about authorship, originality, and ownership. Who owns the rights to a piece of art that was created by a machine? Who should be credited as the artist? What if the AI algorithm used elements from other artists' work to create something new? These questions are yet to be fully resolved by the legal system in our communities. All, all of the, all of this is very interesting. While again, while I think the Chat GPT is a way, is a quite a ways away from really disrupting a lot in the educational world, it's very obvious that mid journey and stable diffusion are already causing waves and causing disruption in the art world. Um, to circle back to that last paragraph, talking about the authorship and um, you know uh, using utilizing. Um, Utilizing other artist style. There's an, I'm looking at an article here on Ars Technica. Um, and the title of the article is, Have AI Image Generators Assimilated Your Art? A New Tool Lets You Check. Um, and that is because 
the way these artificial intelligence works, be they text, be they um, image, you know, AI art or image gen- generators, they have to be fed information first, right? Like they need a knowledge base so they can then become, so they can then reproduce particular styles. If, I don't know if anyone remembers like the first generation of these AI art generators, uh, they, a lot of times you would see a lot of dogs in the in the art uh depending on like what the they were very very rough and they were almost like very psychedelic um trippy kind of um kind of pieces of generated art and a lot of times you would see like dogs uh appear in the pattern sometimes like inside the patterns of a a picture like it you know it'd be a picture of a human being or something and you know you'd, you'd see you'd recognize like multiple like dog faces in the the face of a human being um, or something, honestly, something equally strange. The reason that you're seeing that you'd see all these dogs um, in the AI and the early AI generated art is because it was fed. Those, those, those systems were fed. Those, uh, uh, those learning networks were fed um, amongst its first, amongst its first um, sort of information that was fed was a poker game by Cassius Marcellus Coolidge, better known as the dogs playing poker. Um, in fact, there's actually like 18 of those paintings that were made. There was part of a, an advertisement for cigars, I think. Um, but those 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 paintings were amongst the first that the that the uh, early generations of AI uh, image generators were being fed. So naturally, it just sort of spit out stuff that it spit out stuff that it it coalesced everything that it learned and then spit it out in a different way, basically. Now we have larger and larger databases of art art styles. Um, you know, there are art there are art repositories from like DeviantArt, um, Pinterest, Getty Images. All that is being um, coalesced into these into these databases for these art generators. And so it is it has unintentionally learned different styles of art and reproduces it that way. And it is it's extraordinarily controversial because unintentionally you might accidentally begin stealing unintentionally stealing someone's artwork um even though it's not actually their artwork it is their art style something that someone has spent a long time developing you might uh you know put in a text prompt and accidentally steal that uh that person's art style so there are there are you know that's that's probably to me that like that's like sort of the biggest bridge that we have to cross to figure out um, art ownership, uh, you know, authorship, authority, ownership, whatever you want to call it, over over particular pieces of artwork, and how that's going to shake out um, when it co- when it does come to you know just someone at home screwing around with stable diffusion or you know using the Lensa app um, that was like a big time thing the last uh, last several weeks, um, which actually does use stable diffusion as its um, as its image generator. There, so to me, that's like that's the biggest thing, right? But there is sort of a um, another sort of argument that comes from the art community about like how it's it, it's now so easy and cheap to produce that like like the lens app for for example for like eight bucks you get a whole bunch of like I can't remember exactly how many um, you know images you're allowed to get but basically if you were to ask an art professional artist for their time and that same volume of work. It certainly costs more than $8 for them to do that. Even a digital artist, it's going to cost a lot more than $8 for you to get all that. Um, so there, it is sort of like the, you know, when it comes to the, uh, to quote 
to quote ChatGPT here, the industrialization or the industrial production of, of art is something that artists have been fighting against forever. Um, there's the um, the guy that makes all of the, um, oh gosh, he makes all of the, the only way I can describe them are like the mid-range hotel room paintings of like cottages and stuff. I can't remember who that guy is. Uh, I'll look it up here in a second. Thomas Kincaid. That's what I was thinking of. Thomas Kincaid. You you have seen a Thomas Kincaid painting, but more than likely you've never you've never seen a quote unquote original. They it is mass produced art, um, in in sort of a way that like you, you it's, it's almost like I mean, he's been dead for a long time by the way, uh, probably like a ten years or so now. Um, but at at his most popular, he wasn't really like making these paintings. They were sort of. They were sort of being produced for him to add certain touches and things, and they'd be printed in mass. Um, so Thomas Kincaid was like a very kind of I don't want to say controversial art figure, but like a lot of people, a lot of people in the in the art community don't really think of like Thomas Kincaid as being like this great artist necessarily, um, a great entrepreneur, a great industrialist in his own way. Sure, I mean there's even a Thomas Kincaid community. Um, I think it's like in Vallejo. Um, there's like a, there's like a suburb of, of, of Leho that is like, it looks like a Thomas Kincaid painting. So it's, you know, like the, the idea of like industrializing or mass producing art is something that has gone on forever. Um, you know, like the, the idea of it being, you know, of it, the idea of it being soulless, but also sort of being able to price out or, um, you know, push out like the real artists that that's been a concern forever. And now there are more tools readily available at everyone's disposal to make their own art so it is you can see where these concerns um you can definitely see these where these concerns come from and it's very very understandable um you know there were there are some there are some ai generated comic books that weren't given um weren't given trademark protection because no you know who are you giving the trademark protection to the artist or you're giving it to mid journey or you're giving it to stable diffusion. Like it's, there are so many ethical concerns that like, it's, I, I, this is where I think that we're going to run into the most problems, you know, in the most, these are, this sort of realm of AI is going to have the most immediate effect and the most immediate problems. Um, I'm, I'm very curious to see if how long we are away from a court case involving one of these artists who is, you know, is going to make a probably a fairly legitimate claim to their art having been their art style having been stolen um, by one of these um, by one of these uh, uh, AI art generators. And even then, in that in the legal sense, then who do you sue if if that's what what your grievance is? Do you sue the makers of Stable Diffusion? Do you sue the makers of Mid Journey, the Lenza app? Do you sue the person who on the other side of it? is putting in the text prompts and getting the images like it's it's such murky legal waters such murky ethical waters there just there isn't an answer if anyone is i'm I'm, i know that there's a um, an emerging field of like ai um litigation ai lawyers ai you know that kind of stuff you guys are going to be very busy in the coming years i i have a very good feeling about it um there's, you know, we, we are just hitting the tip of the iceberg in regards to uh, to the, the legal battles and in regards to um, sort of the ethical battles and maybe even the, the you know, I think really the conversation about, like, is it even art 
is really just ramping up now at this point. Uh, so we'll we'll see where that goes in the in the near future. I'm guessing it's going to be very very messy. And again, if you're a lawyer who's working in art, artificial intelligence, intellectual property, you're going to be very busy in the coming years. I can guarantee you that. Now, having said all that, uh, of course, I was dicking around with uh, with stable diffusion. That's that's probably a good entry for everyone to sort of um, to sort of get introduced to this kind of stuff. Mid Journey is more it's supposedly it's more sophisticated in terms of its um in, in terms of its um prompt database um image generation and and not surprised it's also like a you get to pay for it too um like it's a monthly fee so not surprised that doesn't surprise me that something that is not open source might be a little bit more accurate um but you know as as an intro to this kind of stuff stable diffusion it's free and quite frankly it's kind of fun but in the same way I'll get to this a little bit at the end here. In the same way that there are limitations from conversational AI, even 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 really smart ones, there are very clear limitations for um, the art AI as well. So this is this is the this is some stuff that's going to be up on the up on the Instagram. Um, so I gave Stable Diffusion four prompts, and they are four. Basically, just like very random things that were running through my head at at, at any particular moment. Um, so I started off with something kind of pretty simple, um, something that you see, like if you if you log into state if you go find Stable Diffusion's website, um, you'll see one of the first pictures is sort of like a futuristic kind of cityscape. So I, I went with something like that as my first um, as my first AI prompt. All right, so the the specific prompt that I gave it for this picture was futuristic, excuse me, future cityscape in surreal photo style. And you can see this produced a pretty excellent version of that. Um, I'm guessing that this was, again, since this is sort of like the, um, there's a sort of like an example picture of something very similar on their website. I'm going to go ahead and assume that this was, a lot of this sort of landscape and um, I, don't, I don't know what you call it, like the, the landscape and urban photography and artwork was probably something that was fed a lot of because it seemed to do it seemed to do a very good job of producing these sort of uh, prompts. I, I, it was even able to get a little bit more kooky with it and it still kind of followed suit. Um, so I did. So the next one for to kind of tweak that one. The next prompt I did was psychedelic cityscape and pointillism, and this does a very good job of recreating the the you know pointillism style of artwork with the uh, with a psychedelic cityscape. I'm not really sure how. Honestly, this is dead on. This is exactly what I would maybe not exactly what I was thinking, but um, this is a pretty good representation of of how this this particular AI, this particular AI can pick up some of those nuances and. Um, kind of run with them. Now, something that came back really strange, but it was a very strange prompt. I'm not really. I still don't remember exactly why I asked this. I don't think this is accurate, but at the same time, this is a very intriguing. This is a very intriguing interpretation of my prompt, and also it's simultaneously accurate but inaccurate. And that the prompt for this picture is a demon bench pressing in hell. Do not ask me why that particular thought flitted through my head a few weeks ago, but it did. And while this picture certainly is none of that, it doesn't this doesn't this sort of have a very eerie 
sacrilegious feeling to it. Um, so like, while I think, so while there's definitely a, a very obvious shortcoming here and you should have seen some of the other fucking bizarre things that, that popped up, um, with similar prompts, this is about as close as it got. And I just, for some reason, this feels, this feels accurate, even though it is not accurate. Um, and then there's, I'm going to put, uh, all of these in like to, uh, one sort of grouping here. I, uh, I did 1980, my next prompt here was 1980s horror movie posters in neon. And I got four very interesting sort of, um, four very interesting examples here. The first one has this sort of kind of, um, very androgynous looking man, um, with sort of like a stained glass, almost kind of lighting behind him, uh, looks, looks very much like Julian Sands, honestly. Uh, who's like a noted noted uh, horror movie villain, um, and usually kind of plays a bad guy, and um, has did for you know most of the eighties and nineties. In um, oh gosh, what movies is Julian Sands? Uh, fan, I want to say like Phantasm or something, but um, a Julian Sands looking kind of character has a certain malevolent look to him, and it's all nice and neon. It has a very interesting sort of um, look to it. Not sure what's going on with the titling there. Um, and you almost kind of get 1985 or 1980s or whatever kind of there somewhere in the text. Uh, not 100% accurate, but you can kind of see where these are going. The next one, I love this one because it has this very... Uh, this is the one with... Uh, there's like th- two very visible faces and sort of like... I don't know, like a some kind of like creature face or something in the middle of them. Uh, and... It kind of, it kind of feels like a foreign movie poster, um, with the all the writing being kind of un unintelligible, but it does kind of it does kind of look like it's vaguely Cyrillic or something. So I can almost see this one being like a Russian horror movie poster or a horror movie poster from a movie that was produced in like the Ukraine or something. Um, I I love this one. Um, this one has a, a floating skull over a city, um, over a neon cityscape. The skull's kind of cool, even though you don't, like, see all of it. And it has just this very... I, I don't, like, it... The text, the visible text, did a craven, almost feels like we were getting there somewhere with, like, a tagline, right? Like, it feels like we're getting pretty close. Um, I kind of like this one. It's very kooky. The eeriest one, however, is this last one of this, like, I don't know, this ghastly demon boy with bizarre eyes and, like, this you know, missing a nose, like the nose cavity's open, no teeth, this this awful look on his face. Um, there's like vague sort of writing around him. It almost, if, if you kind of squint and look hard enough at it, it almost looks like it's like the neon outline of like a heart, like a, and not like a, you know, not like a romantic heart, like a, like a more medical, medical textbook kind of drawing of a heart. Um, it's almost kind of what it looks like his head is in. Um, this one's definitely the creepiest one to me. I, I kind of like this one a, a lot. But you can see where the limitations for this are, right? Like, it it, it gets close, but it doesn't quite get to... Yeah, I guess you have to... It's one of those things you have to find where the sweet spot is. And it seems like if you were to do cityscapes and landscapes and stuff like that, it gets really close. Um, when you do... When you really start to get specific with an idea... You know, a 1980s horror movie poster in neon, it gets there, but it's not quite there. Um, I've also probably, these were also much shorter prompts. I didn't give it as much information to work with. Um, That was kind of on purpose, but you can kind of see where like the limitations are for this. However, 
it's there's a very good chance that in all of these in all of those uh, photos that I just showed you, there's a very good chance that one of those is someone's photography style. One of those is someone's art style. It's very, very possible that I might have unintentionally stolen someone's work without without even, even having ever seen it before. So I think, again, I'm kind of beating the dead horse here. I think this is the this is the emerging technology that is the emerging technology and AI that is sort of going to cause the most controversy. Um, it is artists and understandably so artists take this shit very, very seriously. Um, art is even, even professional artists who are, you know, making money off of their artwork. They, you, it's still very personal to them. It's not like no one gets into painting because they think it's going to make them a lot of money. They're in it because they enjoy it. And it's something that like that comes from, you know, comes from their personality, their emotions, their experiences and these ai art generators just sort of rip out all of that and reproduce it the good news is if again if you if you spend enough time kind of screwing around with these things the good news for artists is that a lot of these just fucking miss um some of the nightmare fuel that gets produced when you ask it to like i, I, I wish i knew why i was on the demon bench pressing because there were some other like workout related images and boy they were like arms being bent back at weird angles while they're holding weights um muscles that don't exist on the human body appearing people with multiple like head heads with multiple faces in them the these are very inaccurate in many many ways there's again i I guess that's you could actually kind of argue that's an inherent sort of art style um you know not you know thinking about like thinking about like some you know the way like certain cartoons look they don't all look the same some of them have um have styles that almost seem sloppy compared to others you know like the hyper real cartoons versus something like um oh i don't know something like the critic that has like um you know like where people don't really look like people the simpsons people don't really look like people necessarily um so i guess kind of inherently there's like an, an unintentional art style in the inaccuracy of something like stable diffusion or mid-journey but there is, yeah, there, there's definitely like a lot of shortcomings when it comes to sort of producing your own art. Um, but hey, go play around with it. See, uh, see what you can create. See what you can produce. It's um, I, I I'll, I'll hopefully I was screwing around with it for some other purposes that are, are going to be apparent later. Um, hopefully, I can get it sort of refined to create something that that's going to be pretty funny. But it's been quite the journey trying to get this thing uh to sort of to sort of be accurate to what i'm thinking so it is while while it is still far away from we're still far away from like a um uh you know mid-journey or stable diffusion uh from creating its own you know having someone create like a a beginning to end uh coherent incredible like world-breaking comic book it's we're not far off from that being a, a, a real reality we're not that far away um this is something that like i said in a few years there is going to be litigation uh, um in the in terms of intellectual property and you know ownership and authorship of these things there's definitely going to be a lot of litigation coming and it uh coming soon coming soon to a courtroom near you so i do want to wrap this episode up by circling back to the idea that 
Um, you probably, especially if you're, let's say, under the age of 50, you probably are a, a tech gatekeeper without even realizing it. Um, and this is something that I, this is something that a lot of us have dealt with. Um, <clears throat> and that is helping our parents with their technology and helping them figure out their phones, their laptops, their iPads, um, their, you know, their smart TVs, whatever it is. We've all been there and done that. And we are unintentionally, you know, people, especially my age, who kind of grew up, um, who I'm a little bit different in that, like, I had a computer when I was, like, very, very young. Um, so, like, I've, I've been using computers for quite a long time. But people my age have, generally speaking, spent most of their lives uh, using computers, using cell phones, uh, using sort of these everyday tech items that really didn't come into our parents' lives until they themselves were, you know, in their, you know, perhaps mid-30s or even, like, uh, early 40s. Uh, so we are we are sort of the knowledge, you know, we are sort of the knowledge standard um, when it comes to this kind of stuff. And, again, we all have experiences helping our parents out with this. And they, a lot of times, begrudgingly turn to us for help. Um, why they can't ever just ask for help like normal people, who the hell knows? I guess it must be tough asking your kids to do something for you, but whatever. Um, I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole. But there is a very interesting sort of, it's not just that like, I will sort of like, this is where I'm going to sort of go with this. And it's sort of like, give your parents a break. All right. Um, give them a break uh, because it's not so much that like they can't learn or don't want to learn. It's that, Again, like they, they haven't had this technology, the, the the they haven't had the same fluency with this technology the way that I have, and certainly people younger than me have have had um, since you know, again since like I was like six years old when we had a computer, um, and I've had one ever since. So that's you know almost thirty three years of my life, I've had a I've had a I've had a computer um, in some capacity. Um, I've had a cell phone since I was seventeen, I think, which. It, honestly that uh, there's probably young people who have beat me by a lot on that but cell phones also were not um that was an actual cell phone not a smartphone um so it was you know that basically everyone everyone who's under the age of 20 has had a, a a computer in their hand probably since they were like 10 years old um anyway getting a little off track here there's it's not just like that like our parents aren't used to the technology because they're, you know, like again, like my parents have had many, many years to sort of adapt and get used to stuff. But there is like a inherent sort of misalignment with the tech industry at large and um, older, you know, older people. And it's general. This is actually this is actually most industries. Most industries kind of ignore people after a certain age, and the tech industry definitely skews way, way younger in terms of the. In terms of its general user base and also the user base that it wants to grow, obviously, you know, a, a mega company like Microsoft or Google wants to get as many people as it can using its products and you know buying its, you know, using its browser, buying its products, buying its electronics, whatever. But how many how many cell phones, uh, how many cell phones in the market that you know Google, let's say, um, you know, its Pixel phones, how many of its Pixel phones are geared towards people who are eighty? The answer is zero. Um, obviously, stuff like the jitterbug exists for um, for seniors, but like a lot of tech is not designed with older people in mind. 
Um, you know, thinking about thinking about stuff like smaller buttons, touch screens that are difficult to you know might be difficult to read if you have vision problems, if you have cataracts, um, if you uh, you know you need bifocals or something. A lot of those tech products just aren't geared for you. Um, there's also like a, a general uh, misalignment of values. Older generations are certainly more um, have for a long time been a little bit more private um, with their personal information and putting stuff out there. You know, they you know think about like people that grew up with Facebook. And I was actually when I was in uh, when I was in college, my university was one of the first to uh, to have Facebook actually. Um, so I've had it for quite a long time. But, you know, like, I think my my dad got Facebook in the last couple of years, and he doesn't really have My sister has it. He just kind of, my sister is the administrator. He's like kind of like a celebrity in that regard. Uh, he has a Facebook page administrator, my sister, and he just kind of checks on it every now and then to see, like, what everyone's up to. But that wasn't a, th- the idea of, for older generations, and not even just my parents' generation, go back to, you know, Gen X, um, even my generation, um, the elder millennials, it wasn't something that we were like, we grew up used to, whereas much younger generations, Gen Z and whatever the kids being born now are called, um, you know, they're going to, they basically live their whole lives openly sharing um, photos, openly sharing what they're doing, their location with um, anyone, uh, anyone, anyone in the world, basically. Um, and that's just something that is completely foreign and doesn't really align with the uh, doesn't really align with older generations values so there's like there is a, a there are like a lot of different reasons why your why your parents or older generations aren't really great with tech and it's just because it doesn't it is not geared towards them in general it's you know the the, the designs i mean aren't geared towards them in general the who's using it isn't geared towards them in general i mean sure like on something for like a facebook portal You'll see, like, you know, the grandparents or whatever, like, checking into the grandkids. But that's just sort of a, that's just sort of an ideal that um, that Facebook wants. The reality is that the people buying and using their products are generally my age and younger. Um, so just none of it's being engineered, marketed really effectively towards older people. And the the idea that, like, any of these things really provide <clears throat> provide much value is, is something that they, that they just don't get. So... You know, basically, I'm just saying, give your parents a break when it comes to helping them out with some of this stuff. I should probably, honestly, I should become a little bit more patient, too, um, even though I literally wrote them a manual one year for how to use their um, their smart VCR, their smart DVD player. And, of course, that that with the advent of or with the deluge of streaming services, that kind of became irrelevant very quickly. Um, so I got to become a little bit more patient myself. But. Here's strike one for the old people. Something that's very, very interesting is um, I, I found multiple articles about this, um, <clears throat> and I'll use one from the University of Toledo here, that even though younger people are digital natives, they are technologically illiterate, which I find very, very funny. And this is mostly about like the workplace, right? While, again, like while younger generations of kids have had cell phones and especially smartphones and things like that since they were kids, iPads, um, you know, computers, laptops, they've had all these things since they were very young. They're very proficient at using social media. They're very proficient at looking up on YouTube and stuff. But they didn't grow up with, they didn't grow up using programs the way that I had to use programs. 
the like if I wanted to get on a computer and do stuff, I had to you know like my all the things that I used on a computer were like Microsoft Word, uh, Outlook Express. I had to use like business software um, from like the Microsoft Office suite when I was like thirteen years old, twelve years old. Um, kids don't have that experience now with um, with that sort of I, I guess you'd just call it like office technology. So like in the workplace, there's a whole younger generation of kids who really have never used stuff like you know have never used um, like a more sophisticated email client have never had to use some of the some of the other office and, and workplace software that is that is very um, that's very prevalent. I'm going to read a little excerpt here from this article, again, from the University of Toledo. Um, University of Toledo's, I'm guessing, um, I, I actually don't know specifically what department this one came from, but <clears throat> many millennials, individuals born between 1981 and 1996, and the Gen Z population born after 1997 have learned to be great, efficient consumers of technology, such as sending pictures, sharing, sharing videos, and texting or other short-form communication. However, they are far less adept at understanding how to use technology to create useful solutions to their business challenges. For example, using Outlook to send email, Word to prepare documents, Excel to analyze data, and PowerPoint to communicate through presentations. Uh, here's a quote from Dr. Gary Inch, um, professor, at, uh, professor at University of Toledo in the School of Management. Um, While students are quite adept at using their cell phones and basic software, they may not be computer fluent. Um, Moving on here, the other issue is that middle and high school students mostly use Google Chromebooks, Google Docs, and Gmail before college. Uh, doctor, I think this is, again, Dr. Inch here continuing. Those students are learning skills that are not relevant in the business world. Microsoft Office is one of the most desired skills by hiring managers. Most corporations do not run off of Chrome OS. Uh, they do not create reports in Google Docs, Google Docs, nor do they begin boardroom presentations on a Google slide. In fact, recent research has shown that only 15 companies listed in the S&P 500 are using Google's productivity suite. Um, so yeah, like, so shame on you, young people, for um, not helping your your old parents post on Facebook, um, because apparently you motherfuckers don't even know how to use Microsoft Office. So there is, so don't you know you don't be don't be too high and mighty when it comes to not having. Uh, someone in your family not having complete mastery of the tech world because there's a very good chance that you might not either. Uh, so despite all your knowledge in, uh, in posting TikToks and posting uh, on Instagram. All right, that does it for my first solo venture in quite a while. Uh, I know that was a bit rambly and I'm going to have to do quite a bit of editing to make this thing sound fucking normal. <laughs> but uh, but it was definitely uh, definitely interesting, kind of fun having just uh, sort of a, sort of a one-way conversation or I guess a, a duologue with myself almost. Um, but I, I will be back next week as we are going to tackle, uh, the gym and gym culture and all that goes along with that. Um, and the bear, how you can, how we can break down those barriers to get more people in the gym until next week. Thanks for downloading streaming and we will see you again soon.